is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Come Together series, where we love to bring you the stories of unlikely people coming together and doing great and even not so great things, just small things. The idea that in this country, people of disparate incomes, races, religions, well, we come together every day in beautiful ways. It just never makes the news. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next Come Together story. One Democratic Missouri lawmaker actually said that she hopes the President of the United States, President Trump, is assassinated. Missouri State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal could very well lose her job if she does not resign by today. She posted a comment a few weeks ago on her personal Facebook page that she hoped President Donald Trump is assassinated. And is refusing tonight to apologize. We need a resignation. There is no way in hell that I'm resigning. When most of us heard about this whole episode, let's be honest, we didn't say to ourselves, I want to go and have coffee with this chick. But one man out there did. I think the exciting thing about Christianity is when someone falls into a pit that they dug for themselves is the joy of reaching the hand down to try to pull him out of the pit that he he deserved to be in. And if if uh, if we just think about that concept of the Christian value system, it could get rid get rid of a lot of animosity. I think there's a verse someplace that says, "Vengeance is mine," said the Lord. Well, I think. Too often, we want to take vengeance. We want to execute the uh, the penalties. You're listening to businessman and philanthropist Foster Freeze. And for Maria Chappelle Nadal's part, she later apologized. I, I couldn't share all the things I messed up because we, had, so we only had a couple hours. Foster flew out to Maria and her district that includes Ferguson, Missouri, to share this time together. They went to her Sunday church service and then had coffee. And the punchline is, we say neither one of us changed our position on marriage or on sexuality. And so when we can talk about things that we agree on, uh, we then learn how to be more tolerant of what we disagree on. Tolerance used to mean you believe one way, Alex, I believe the others. We're absolutely opposite. Let's go play golf. But now tolerance has morphed that you have to embrace my values every bit as dear as your own. And so we have to go back to what the word tolerance means and also just uh, the, the whole idea of how do we get along better? How do we be more civil? How do we, how do we disagree in a, an agreeable way? As you might expect, many of Maria's colleagues in the Missouri state government didn't quite approach the situation with the same grace as Foster. Understandably, they were calling for her to resign. And if she didn't, they were threatening to impeach her and kick her out of office. I don't want to make a judgment for the people in Missouri. That's for them to uh, decide. But as far as my personal life, you know, why would I want to hold this against her when she said, hey, I'm, I messed up. I really should not have done that. And uh, how can I say, well, we're going to stomp on your throat and uh, push you down? Foster's thing with coffee time, creating new bonds, 
wasn't originally his idea. It was the idea of a lesbian activist named Donna Redwing, who reached out to Bob Vanderplatz, a traditional values activist, whom she frequently sparred with in the public square, but didn't know as a human person at all. So she asked him to coffee, and he said yes, and they're now friends. And Bob regrets that he wasn't the one to reach out to her. Beautiful. Foster saw all of this and was inspired. The power of one single story. And he wanted to take it national. And his return to civility challenge offered to give $25 for folks who don't agree on many things to have coffee together on August 25th, 2017. $25, you're a challenge to people. That's some pretty nice coffee you were buying for people, Foster. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was well worth it. And uh, one of the greatest things, Alex, that came out of this, some guy uh, writes me an email. He says, because of your coffee challenge, I took a guy that I've been at odds with for 20 years because he cheated me in a business deal. And we, we had coffee together, and I forgave him, and he forgave me. And now we're getting together occasionally. And if nothing else came with a coffee challenge, uh, in addition to the, the fun time with Maria, it was well worth it. And I'm going to try to remind people to, to, to continue to do it because uh, it, it's going to bear fruit. And we should have that as a maybe a weekly uh, endeavor for each of us. Uh, I, I think it's a, a really a terrific idea. And, and that with Maria, on tape, uh, the newspaper uh, concluded with the fact that I, I said uh, to, to the uh, camera, I said, I'm a white Republican and she's a black Democrat, but I love this woman. And when you meet her, you can't help but uh, have nice feelings towards her. And great job as always, Alex. And what a great story. And by the way, a little bit about Foster Freeze's life. His mom dropped out of school in the eighth grade in order to pick cotton and help save her family's Texas farm. With eight siblings to feed and no father around, somebody had to. His dad was a cattle dealer who busted his butt. Foster's first job as a kid was delivering newspapers. He learned a little bit about entrepreneurialism there. He grew up in a little town in Wisconsin of 5,000 people. And ultimately, he'd form an investment company, make a fortune. He's a Republican. You'd think, what does this guy have in common with a Missouri state senator who happens to be black? Well, a whole lot. And that's why he did this coffee challenge. And maybe we all should. And next year, we'll cover here on Our American Stories, the coffee challenge. What a great idea. And we can disagree and, well, not be disagreeable. And let's try and find common ground. And I think that's why folks love this show. Because there's no screaming, there's no yelling. It's a screaming and yelling-free zone. Foster Freeze's story, Maria Chappelle Nadal's story, here on Our American Stories.
this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Every now and then, we like to drop in on some of our favorite TV shows, and Shark Tank is it. We love everything about it. It's celebration of capitalism in the end, and capital, and people pitching each other, and trying to live the American dream, and every kind of American walks through the Shark Tank. Young and old, black and white, it makes no difference. North and south, east and west, and we're all rooting for the people And sometimes it works out, and boy, sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't, sometimes it's really funny. This particular episode started with a display that included a whole lot of barbecue sauce and a microwave. Hi, I'm Al Bubba Baker from Avon, Ohio, owner of the D-Bone Baby Back Rib Steaks. I'm seeking $300,000 in exchange for 15% equity in my company. And this is my lovely daughter, Brittany. She's going to make you sharks, ribs, in a microwave in two minutes. Now, I played a little football in the NFL for 13 years. That was my job. Barbecue is my passion. Sadly, I married a woman that doesn't like ribs because they're too messy. So I vowed to find a way for my wife to be able to enjoy ribs. But how do you make ribs less messy? You take the bones out. <laughs> After 20 years, I found the perfect method, and the D-Bone Baby Back Rib Steaks were born. We are the only people that have removed the bones from an actual slab of rib, leaving the meat intact so that everyone can enjoy ribs with a knife and fork. Our D-Bone Baby Back Rib Steak is not pieces of meat formed in the shape of a rib. You know what I mean? <laughs> you tell, Bubba. Boneless meats are the way of the future, and the future is now. Make no bones about it, sharks. It's time for some ribs. <laughs> yeah. Always time All for right. ribs. Bubba, bless me with the Bubba baby back. <laughs> Bubba, who'd you play for? Well, I played for the Lions. I was rookie of the year in 1978. I played for the then St. Louis Cardinals, and then I came back and I retired in Cleveland in 1990. That's a long career, man. Great career. And there you have it. That's as good a pitch as you'll hear on Shark Tank. Al, Bubba, Baker, and Brittany. Well, Bubba's daughter then passed out plates of ribs she just heated up in the micro. And the sharks, well, they feasted. This is absolutely delicious. Yeah, it's very this good. This is really, really good. Thank you, man. Thank you. So basically, I just want to be really, really clear. I buy this. I throw it in the microwave for two minutes. And it tastes like this? You got it. Often when we go to restaurants, cowboy ribeye, bone-in ribeye, some people actually believe that the bone just tastes better. That's a great point. We cook the product with the bone in it, and when the product is fully cooked, then we remove the bones, then we quick chill it, and then it's packed right away. Is there anything proprietary about how you're removing the bone or you're genetically altering cows so they grow up with no bone? Actually, it's pigs. <laughs> Kevin, it's, it's, it's hogs. It's hogs, Kevin. Mr. City Slick, Mr. Wonderful Kevin might just be a little confused about his livestock, but the man has no confusion about how to make money. He zeroed in on the key question. Okay, so why couldn't I just do the same thing? Well, right here, Kevin, is the patent for the product. And right here is the patent for the process. Wow. Can I see the process patent? Here, take them both. So nobody else can make boneless ribs? Let me be more specific. No one else can make a fully cooked rib with either one or more bones removed from it. Wow. 
Hey, how do you get the bones out? If I tell you that, I gotta kill you. Kill him? No, you don't. You got a patent. You got a patent for it, Bubba. You can tell him. Yeah, tell me. Robert, honestly, there's the patent, then there's the know-how. And what I say to people who are gonna go try and reverse engineer and figure out how to do it, I say, good luck to you, because it took me 20 years to do it. I gotta tell you something. In the entire history of Shark Tank, I've never seen a patent on a food product ever before. Thank you, because we worked it. Well, the sharks were clearly interested. Robert and Barbara Corcoran jumped in with more questions. Al, what are your sales and how many locations are you in? Okay, our sales are $154,000. Over what period? Over a year's period. We're selling in about 48 stores. You said it took you 20 years to develop this and you've only been in business one year. What happened to those other 19 years? Well, at one point, I'll be honest with you, I, um, I hate to use this word, I quit. And the reason that this young lady and I are partners is we had an incident where she was in track and uh, like most dads, I was pushing her. She said, hey, I don't wanna run track. I said, you cannot quit. And she said, well, you quit on the boneless ribs. Oh, yeah. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't still be doing what I'm doing. And what a story. And this is why people love Shark Tank, frankly. I mean, it's not just the products. It's the people. Mr. Wonderful had heard enough. He wanted in. Okay, guys, I actually am an investor in a restaurant chain with 450 locations that sells a ton of protein. And this is their second largest selling item, ribs. Here's a big problem with your deal right now. You're asking for $2 million valuation on this thing. You're not making any money. The only value here is in the patent. This reminds me of a story that's so relevant to you. I love stories. The first season of Shark Tank, a guy stood right where you are. He had a folding neck guitar. He wanted to build out a guitar company. The only thing of value was a patent on the folding neck technology. You know where we are today? Where are you at? They are licensing that technology on Fender Bender guitars all around the world. He's going to be rich. Listen to what I'm saying to you. A patent on a food product? That's interesting. And the only value in the patent is to license it to one of the suppliers of protein. I want to take you to one guy okay. that supplies a, you know what, pigs hate this guy. <laughs> All around the world, pigs are walking around saying, stop the sense of slaughter because of this one guy. <laughs> so my offer is very simple. I'll give you the $300,000. It's contingent on getting one of the large meat processors in America to license the patent. But I want 49%. That's the deal. And by the way, that's almost always Mr. Wonderful's MO. He's an intellectual property guy. He wants to sell licensing. He doesn't want to manufacture. He doesn't want to do any of that stuff. And by the way, we learn a lot from this show because in the end, who would know if you didn't know that you can just sell an idea and let a manufacturer do it, sit at home and just collect royalties. Not just musicians collect royalties. People of all kinds do. And by the way, people who sit on mineral rights collect royalties. So when you hear, and the next time you hear a story about whether to frack or not in your area, maybe the farmland you're sitting on is sitting on some natural mineral rights, and you can just sell those rights to somebody, and you can take care of your family. Well, that was Kevin's deal, and now the other sharks, they got to weigh in. Damon John saw an opening. That's the first time Kevin actually has a decent idea when it comes to something like this. It's the first time we've heard his stupid idea making any sense. That idea is so brilliant, I'll do the exact same deal, but I'll only take 30%. Bam, Kevin. 
This greedy savage, his deal is horrible. He's never done a deal like this. If you talk I've to the guy that owns- plenty. Al, let me clear it up for you. Yeah, okay, bro. I think you're paying a very expensive price for somebody to make a phone call for you that you could do on your own. I'm out. Bob? I would have uh, pitched you that I should bring it to some of the big box stores, some of the club channels like BJ's, Costco, but I happen to think some of the offers on the table are better, so I'm out. But I'm, I'm kind of the same, but I think you need to fatten up the hog some before it's ready to go. For me, the business would have to be a little bit bigger. That's why you're limited kind of to the licensing play. So for those reasons, I'm out. Okay. Al, you've got two offers. Yeah. Both licensing deals. Al, is this the path that you want to go down? Talk to the guys at Voyager and Fender all around the world. I'm the man. And I want you and I to debone this pig together. <laughs> You've got the real deal and you got the discount license guy. Day one, you're not taking a check and he wants to take 50% of your company. 49, I'm worth every cent of that 49%. What are you gonna do? Um, Kevin, I love the fact that you have made us an offer, but I think I'm gonna take Daniel's ah, deal. You picked the better man, my son. the pig right in front of me. Thanks a lot. Right deal, Al. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats, guys. <laughs> what a great laugh. And it would have never happened without Brittany, Al Bubba Baker's daughter. Bubba went on with Damon, as we heard, and Bubba's boneless ribs was introduced to the nation. Soon, Bubba and his daughter struck a deal with Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, and by early 2017, their business which had only taken in $154,000 in sales when appearing on Shark Tank, crossed the $16 million mark in sales. What an American story. A Shark Tank story. Al Bubba Baker and Britney's story. Here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And anytime we can play Alison Krauss in the right context, we do. No one does the American songbook better. Straight as an arrow. Let the song do the talking. And it's time for our regular final thought segment. This is when we hear final thoughts from people who are dying. And also final thoughts from folks about those who have passed. A eulogy. A written tribute. Anything that stirs the soul. And we've taken a few from this particular gentleman who writes periodically for the Wall Street Journal because he's a doctor. And doctors know firsthand a lot about death. And this is a man who has not insulated himself from the emotional impact of patients that die. And that makes him remarkable. This week's final thoughts feature is a powerful one from Dr. E. Wesley Ely. And again, he's a professor of medicine and critical care at the Nashville VA Medical Center and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Ely recently told the story in the Wall Street Journal, and it was called A Swimming Pool in the ICU. He graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Swimming pool in the ICU? You must be nuts. nuts. The nurse's voice was almost lost among the whooshing ventilator and infusion pumps. Five days earlier, we had admitted Benny, a Vietnam veteran, to the intensive care unit of our VA hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Frail and wrinkled, he had a look of utter confusion and a furrowed brow that would pluck the heartstrings of even the most calloused physician. Decades spent in southern tobacco fields left him looking old enough to remember Hoover's presidency. Double pneumonia and too much sedation made him delirious. As his attending physician, I was thankful for his family. His daughter and son, Laura and Lynn, implored, take good care of dad, he's all we have. Seeing him on a ventilator is terrifying, they said, but we believe in miracles. While loving, such a mindset could become problematic since their father's situation had the makings of a fatal illness despite our best technology. With antibiotics and fluids, Benny improved dramatically and was taken off the ventilator several days later. That same night, though, a massive stroke paralyzed his entire left side and he went back on life support. We quickly administered clot-busting medicine and he rallied remarkably regaining movement of his left arm and leg. The following day, the intern reported, his delirium has cleared and he's mouthing words around the endotracheal tube despite this wicked aspiration pneumonia. I sensed an unexpected window of opportunity. We revisited Benny's life goals in light of what had happened and spoke directly about the big picture. With his children looking on, I held Benny's hand and looked him in the eyes. Choosing my words based on what I knew about his background and the family's expectation of miracles, I said, Benny, just like tobacco plants eventually wither and wilt, so do we. You have improved in some ways, but overall, you're very weak. How can we serve you best? The next morning, Laura and Lynn were upbeat, which confused me since Benny looked weaker than ever. They pointed to words on a whiteboard in the room, explaining they were Benny's goals. 
Stable vital signs? Baptism. I spotted Kelly, our charge nurse, smiling like a cat who'd swallowed a canary. In her arms, she clutched a box containing a large vinyl swimming pool. First, I made sure this was actually Benny's request and not the family's. My next thought was that we'd have a chaplain anoint him with holy water in his bed. But Laura disagreed. Jesus wasn't sprinkled, Doc. He was dumped. A senior physician protested that the patient was on a ventilator and said he'd never seen a bedside baptism like this in 50 years of practice. There was no shortage of opinions about whether this was appropriate, safe, or even possible. A large area next to Benny's bed was cleared and an electric pump inflated the pool. When a large multi-person bucket brigade proved too difficult, an engineer rigged dialysis tubing to circulate the pool with a stream of warm water. Benny was then hoisted high into the air via a patient transfer lift and the ventilator was unplugged before he was lowered into the pool. Lynn gently took his father, the man who'd showed him how to farm, into his arms. Following the cherished Christian tradition, he slowly submerged Benny's head, completely under the water, saying, Dad, I baptize you in the name of the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that On cue, the palliative care social worker began belting out Amazing Grace. The rest of us stood frozen in time. I once was First out of the water was blue corrugated ventilator tubing. Then his face appeared around the breathing tube. Benny's huge smile seemed to say, better late than never. When he died a week later, Laura implored me to tell other people about her dad, hoping his experience would show them that we can all become strong through our weakness. In fact, I've seen scores of patients and families use profound outer wasting as a catalyst for deep inner renewal. The most two important frames of our life are birth and death. We typically associate baptism with the former, yet Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism to indicate the formative next step that dying represents for our journey. The ICU team's bold yet careful response to Benny's unusual request taught me an enduring lesson regarding sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. In all the surrounding insanity of the hospital that day, diving deeply into Benny's life through his baptism on the breathing machine allowed all of us to be reborn too. Being with him in that pool and rising with him out of it, we walked into others' lives better prepared to serve them. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. And that's why we love running these stories. Uh, you know, you got to hold back a tear listening to that. And I love that definition of empathy and sympathy. You know, Bono said of Johnny Cash when he was buried, Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned. He sings with the damned. And I think that's why Cash was so loved. And God bless the folks who did this amazing thing. Uh, and most folks in most hospitals just wouldn't have bothered. 
Too difficult. Splash a little water on his head. That's it. That's all we got. We'll end here as we started. Our final thought segment. Alison Krauss. is our american stories and we love to talk about everything here on this show from arts to sports to history even and this segment combines two of our favorite things history and music and that brings us to our regular weekly feature and it's brought to us by jesse as always this week in music history well i'm on a bed down down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, I'm on a lake, down by the riverside, This week in music history, 1956, the Million Dollar Quartet impromptu jam session took place at Sun Studios in Memphis with Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. When Shelby Singleton bought Sun Records in 1969, he began an extensive search through 10,000 hours of recordings when he discovered the lost tapes that were then released in 1981. Several years later, the rest of the legendary recording sessions were found and released in 1987. And in 1960, the Crickets released the single, I Fought the Law. Written by Sonny Curtis, it became a top 10 hit for the band in 1966 and was also recorded by The Clash in 79. And in 1969, the Rolling Stones recorded Brown Sugar at Muscle Shoals Studios in Alabama. Even though this was recorded in December of 1969, the Stones didn't release it until April of 71 because of a legal dispute over royalties. This was also one of the four songs that the Stones had to agree not to play when they were allowed to perform in China. After getting approval to play in China for the first time in 2003, they canceled because of a deadly SARS outbreak. In 1965, The Birds started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Turn, 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 the group's second number one after Mr. Tambourine Man. Turn, 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 turn. There is 
The lyrics, except for the title and the final two lines, are adapted word for word from the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. And in 1969, Led Zeppelin made their debut on the U.S. singles chart with Whole Lotta Love, made number four on the charts. You need cool air, baby, I'm not fooling. I'm gonna sit here back in school way down inside. Honey, you need it. I'm gonna give you my love. I'm gonna give you my love. The song was basically lifted from a Muddy Waters recording from 1962 called You Need Love, which was written by Willie Dixon. You've got yawning, and i got funny. Baby, you look so oh, sweet and cunning. Baby, way down inside, woman, you need Similarities with You Need Love led to a lawsuit against Led Zeppelin in 1985, which was settled out of court in favor of Dixon for an undisclosed amount. Also in 1969, this week in music history, the one-hit wonder band known as Steam started the two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Nana Hey Hey Kiss Him Goodbye. One of the strangest number one hits in U.S. history. The song was written as a throwaway B-side, but became a cultural phenomenon. The chorus translates really well to other languages, giving it an international appeal. The Spanish rendition goes, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, adios. And in 1975, Paul Simon went to number one on the U.S. album chart with Still Crazy After All These Years, his first U.S. number one solo album. He won two Grammy Awards for Album of the Year and Best Male Pop Vocal Performance in 1976. In 2013, the electric guitar played by Bob Dylan at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival was sold at auction in New York for a record $965,000. The Fender Stratocaster had been in the possession of a New Jersey family for 48 years after Dylan left it on a private airplane. And born this week in music history, 1920, Dave Brubeck, jazz pianist and composer, Take 5 is a jazz standard composed by Paul Desmond and originally recorded by the Dave Brubeck Quartet for its 1959 album Time Out, recorded at Columbia Records' 30th Street Studio in New York City on July 1st, 1959. Two years later, it became an unlikely hit and the biggest-selling jazz single ever. In 
born this week in music history, 1943, Jim Morrison, singer and lyricist for The Doors. He had the 1967 U.S. number one single, Light My Fire, and 1971 with Riders on the Storm. He co-founded The Doors in the summer of 1965 in Venice, California. Morrison recorded a total of six studio albums with The Doors, all of which were highly successful. Though The Doors recorded more albums after his death, the loss of Morrison was crippling to the band, and they disbanded in 1973. In 1993, Morrison, as a member of The Doors, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out alone Riders on the storm. And in 1974, Carl Douglas started the two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Kung Fu Fighting. Douglas is from Jamaica. He was the first Jamaican-born singer to have a number one hit in the United States. Everybody was Kung Fu Fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. The song was recorded in ten minutes. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. It started out as a B-side. But they fought with Went on to sell over 10 million copies. And in 1967, Otis Redding went into the studio to record Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. And that's This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships rolling in Then I'll watch them roll away again I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. I left my home in Georgia and I headed for the Frisco Bay. Cause I've got nothing to live for. Look like nothing's gonna come my way. So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the Watching the tide roll away Ooh. Sitting on the dock of a bay Wasting time Look like nothing's gonna change Everything seems to stay the same I can't do what ten people tell me to do so I guess I'll remain the same Sitting here resting my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone Listen, for 2,000 miles I roam Just to make a dish dock my home Now I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide 
sitting on the dock of the bay I'm wasting time Our American stories, and for the hour, the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. The Godfather was a classic. The Sopranos, wow, what TV. But you want to talk a movie that left a mark? Goodfellas is a 1990 American biographical crime film directed by Martin Scorsese. It's an adaptation of the 1986 nonfiction book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. The film narrates the rise and fall of mob associate Henry Hill and his friends over a period of Well, almost 25 years, from 1955 to 1980. But after wrapping his first feature film, Mean Streets, in 1973, Martin Scorsese never saw himself making another gangster movie. That is, until he picked up the book by Nicholas Pileggi called Wise Guy. Here's Scorsese and Pileggi on how Goodfellas was set in motion. Having dealt with that world to a certain extent, I felt, therefore, I never really wanted to touch upon that world again. But... I found that the the style of the book was so interesting, and I try to say, boy, if I can make a film like the style of this book, because what's the point of making another gangster picture? There have been several books about mob bosses, but it was like getting a hold of a soldier in Napoleon's army. That's who I wanted. I wanted to know how it worked inside. Detail, detail, detail. Everything is detail. I was interested in the minutiae of how to live as a wise guy. I wanted to get into the, the frame of mind of a guy who works that way every day. And you also had the voice of Henry. So much of that book was just his telling the story. And Marty called, and he said, uh, hello? He said, yeah, my my name's Marty Scorsese. He said, I'm a film director, a movie director, I think he said. And he said, do you know? And I said, I know who you are. And he said, well, I'm calling you because he said, I just read your book. And he said, I've been looking for this book for years. I said, well, I've been waiting for this phone call all my life. So he said, I want to do it. But he wanted to write it with me, but he couldn't make a deal with me. So I said, don't worry about it. The deal with you is on the phone now. We will make this movie. Don't you worry about anything else. I hadn't put my name on a script since Mean Streets, and I wanted to create an exhilaration of that kind of life. Now, when you're working with Marty, of course, he already sees the movie. I didn't, but it was all right. He brought me along. You know, I did most of the typing, I don't, but he writes longhand. So I would type, and then it would come out, and then he would scratch these little things on it, and we would work on it, and, we'd, and, and the dialogue would be bounced back and forth between us. So we would, we would develop scene after scene. In this scene, this is what's going to happen, then we go to this. And he also said, put in the corner, put in the corner, and he would mention a piece of music. I want that music here. And anyone who has seen a Scorsese movie knows how much the music drives the movie. Nowhere is this fact better exemplified than in his Goodfellas picture. For Scorsese, who carries a music library in his head, he hears the music while he's penning the script. You know, we did our jobs and, you know, we had great makeup and they made us look all whacked out. But talk about music and editing. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Let's go shopping. Marty had such great ideas about how to put music to to some of those images. When we were writing, there's that scene where Bob De Niro is standing at the bar with a cigarette, and he's looking at Manny, and he's going to kill him. 
and you know he's going to kill him. And Marty has this shot, and he gets closer and closer and closer, and Bob's eyes get more wolf-like. It was just the most terrifying picture. And as I'm typing that stuff, because I'm the typist, he says, put in cream, put in cream. I said, what cream? He says, just write, ta- write down cream. I said, what, what cream? Who are you talking about? Just put it, just put it, put it, put it. Do me a favor, just put it. So I typed in cream. Well, it turns out, while we're typing that scene, he's already listening to the music. So now, you can't, I can't interpret that. I can't tell you where that, it's all intuitive. It's all part of whatever comes out of him. Now I look at that scene, and when I see it, it's just, it's an amazing scene with that music and that close-up of Bob. Conway, uh, the De Niro character, he decides at that point, being annoyed by all these people around him asking for their cut of the job, the Lufthansa robbery and all that stuff, why should he give it to anybody? Why shouldn't he just keep it all for himself? The only way to do that is to give uh, his friend, you know, Tommy, Joe Pesci's uh, character, a little sort of nod wink, in a sense. You see that in his eyes. And we shot that, I think, at 32 frames a second or 36 frames just to get, I don't know. I didn't know what I was going to get. But then when I saw the rushes, I saw that gleam in his eyes. And I synced that to the guitar from Sunshine of Love right to that point. Some of it, he just, he put into the film in the editing room. He has a deep sense of how music should go with a film. And by that, I don't mean that, that, uh, that it should go easily. Sometimes it's a shocking choice, uh, but it works like crazy. I kind of see everything with music, especially the juxtaposition of the type of music you're listening to, to the images that you see out the window, and that sort of thing. And I, I said, that's the way music should be in a movie. That was the first time I had ever seen anyone shot. You remember where you ever heard first? Oh, uh, usually, yeah, usually a piece of music. I remember when I first heard it. Where, with your mother in a butcher and, shop. Or... Yeah, yeah. And um, he'll carry those pieces of music around for years and then suddenly find exactly the right place for that piece. Each shot was designed to certain bars of Layla. We had the music already played on the set to get the right rhythm for the movement or for the length of the scene. And when I got in the editing room, then I had to make sure that I was trying to get exactly what he wanted. He was very specific about how he wanted the music to cut. Let's try this. It's really on the way. Yeah. Right here. We're starting. Goodfellas was one of those films that uh, I felt we rode like a horse. It was so beautifully scripted and shaped by Nick Pelleggi and Marty that it had its own energy, it had its own drive, and as Marty was laying it down, it just had an incredible feeling to it. So we were sort of riding it and trying to stay on top of it and stay ahead of it if we could, but it was so strong. It had such a rhythm. And when we come back, more on the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. This is our American story. And as always, we take you on some diversions and some side trips on some of the most iconic artists 
movies, music, and good fellas, it doesn't get better. More after these messages. I'll soon be with you, my love. Give you my dog surprise. I'll be with you, darling, soon. I'll be with you when the stars start falling. Stands on golden sand and watches the ships that go sailing. This is our American stories, the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. We continue that story. The three main characters were played by Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, who got the role after Al Pacino turned it down, and Ray Liotta, who only had four movies under his belt but beat out Sean Penn for the role as Henry Hill. Paul Sorvino, who was cast as mob boss Paul Cicero, had no problem finding the voice and walk of his character, but found it challenging finding what he called that kernel of coldness and absolute hardness that is antithetical to my nature, except when my family is threatened. Here is Sorvino on how he struggled finding the dark realities of his character. That I didn't think I could do it. Because it was not the kind of role that I felt I really had an affinity for. The externals were easy, a middle-aged Italian man. The difficulty was in the lethality that I felt I didn't possess. And so even though I wanted to do it, I was sort of faking when I went to the meeting and giving Martin the impression that I knew exactly what to do with it when I had no idea what to do with it. But I wanted so much to be in a Scorsese movie. I guess he just figured I was capable of it. And uh, it went, it was about two months uh, in preparation to try to get this quality that I knew it called for. I was kind of agonizing over it for a couple of months. I was thinking, I'm going to ruin this movie. I was looking for something to get out of it. Until two days before we started production, by virtue of constantly searching to find where that kind of quality that killers have. Uh, I was preparing to go out one night, uh, passed by the mirror to check for spinach in the teeth, and uh, I jumped back. I, I literally frightened myself. I saw a look in my eyes that frightened me. And who was that? I said, that's Paulie. And once I found it, the role became just a duck in water. It just was so easy to do. That what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. <laughs> in order to create the greatest degree of truth, reality, and believability in his scenes, Scorsese is infamous for putting his actors through improvisations. Here's the Goodfellas team discussing this playful procedure. So much of what Scorsese does is in the way he directs. Uh, and so you see something entirely different up on the screen often than is in that script. If I felt the scene could be opened up, I usually did that with the actors in rehearsal. So we would rehearse 35, 40 minutes a scene. Uh, and they were all improvisations. They were very loosely around the script. Just sort of what, would, what was happening, not improvising by writing lines. I mean, improvising behaviorally. He always says, don't act like these people. Behave like them. You know me. I would like to help you out. I hope so. Sonny, tell him what we talked about. He knows so well what actors need and how to help them. And then he'll see something he likes and he'll come over and say, you know, um, 
you know what you said in that other improvisation? Why don't you say that to him again? Or, or um, let him have it. Now go home and get your f***ing shine box. Mother f***ing mutt! You, you piece of He uses the power of the verb. Acting is doing something. I threaten, I charm, I beg. And what Martin does in the improvisation is encourage the doing of things. Well, that merely means stay with the other fellow and deal with what he's giving you. Why, what are you, stupid? What's the matter with you? I apologize. What's the matter with you? Sorry. What the f*** is the matter with you? You feel like you're a real collaborator. He makes you feel that way, and in a certain sense you are, because you're giving all the good things that you have. And you see anybody f***ing around with that you're going to tell me, right? Yeah. That means anybody. He knows what he wants to do, but you really feel like you're creating and he's letting you go uh, to do what, what, what you've come up with. That's just the way he is. He, he's very open to a lot of uh, ideas from anybody. That was, for an actor, it was like the jackpot. And that was Lorraine Bracco talking, and it was the jackpot for everyone who acted in this movie. But the thing about improvisation is, for Scorsese at least, it's just a tool a tool that is used by writers to chisel out a very detailed script of dialogue for the actors. It can be said that Joe Pesci owns not only the most famous improvised scenes in movie-making history, but the most famous scene. Here's Goodfellas star Joe Pesci. You don't improvise on camera when we're shooting. They all think that Marty just doesn't do anything, that he lets the actor say, okay, go ahead, and he sits there like this, you know, and, and enjoys it. You know, It's not true. I mean, it's so crazy to think that you can go in there and make a movie like that. It has to be structured. You're still saying a script. <laughs> See, I wish I was big just once. <laughs> You're a big cop. <laughs> really funny. Really funny. <laughs> what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> It's funny, you know, it's a good story, it's funny, you're a funny guy. <laughs> that scene in uh, uh, I Make You Laugh, Tommy, no, you, got it all wrong. Uh, you know, I didn't write that, I get credit for that all the time, people want to give me awards. Oh, you wrote that, I never wrote that. Joe made it up. What? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. You mean, so? well, let me understand this, I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you, I make you laugh. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? When Joe told the story that, that it happened to him about you're a funny guy, except he was on the receiving end of it, uh, we then improved it for a while in rehearsal and then locked it in. I'm not just... Do you know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. And that was very carefully worked on within our rehearsal period. I was able, as a co-writer, to record several takes, maybe four to five takes between Ray and Joe of this dialogue. I then took that and rewrote that, which was then inserted into the script. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? <laughs> it was interesting how he shot that sequence. He's shooting it in a medium shot, not in a close-up. And the reason I always tell film students this, that it's very important, is that, first of all, he knew the scene was powerful enough that he did not need close-ups. And secondly, what he really wanted to show was how the people around Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta were gradually changing the looks on their faces as, as the sense of dread began to creep into what was supposed to be a casual conversation and suddenly it is wonderful how you see their faces change and he was very adamant that that's how he wanted to shoot it oh, oh anthony he's a big boy he knows what he said what'd you say You're right. funny how and you just watch his body language and you know it's dead serious 
and it could turn on a, a split second. But hard to cut. Marty and I spent a long time figuring out how long to wait until Ray Liotta actually says, come on, Tommy. Funny. What the f*** is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the f*** out of here, Tommy. <laughs> Your mother f- I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? And all the laughter you hear on the track is me and them and everybody. Because <laughs> we have to create an atmosphere of, of, of that kind of a moment on the set. And, of course, a lot of the guys standing around had no idea it was Joe was going to improvise at that point. So there were, a lot of those reactions were absolutely pure. The backstory to the story you just heard is that while working in a restaurant, a young Pesci apparently told the mobster that he was funny, a compliment that was met with a less than enthusiastic response. Pesci relayed the anecdote to Scorsese, who decided to include it in the film. Scorsese didn't include the scenes in the shooting script so that Pesci and Laota's interactions could elicit genuine surprise and genuine reactions from the supporting cast. By the way, the F-bomb is dropped 296 times during the film, averaging twice per minute, making it the 12th most F-bomb-laden film ever released. The script only called for the word to be used 70 times, by the way, but much of the dialogue was improvised during the shooting, where the expletives just, well, piled up. Roughly half of them are by Joe Pesci. After Pesci's mother saw the film, she said she liked it, but asked if he had to swear so much. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more of the story behind the story of the making of one of the great American gangster films, one of the great American films. And by the way, listening to that scene and remembering what it looked like, that, that nervousness that turned into laughter. And by the way, if you've ever met one of these wise guys in your life, they live off the power of turning on the dime how your day's going. And that's what they love. They'll kill you, they'll make you laugh, but it's all about them. And they get this minutia beautifully in Goodfellas. More of the story, behind the story of the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Like the fella once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back. Like the sailor said, quote, ain't that a hole in a boat? My head keeps spinning. I go to sleep and keep grinning. If this is just a beginning, my life is gonna be beautiful. I've sunshine enough to spread. It's just like the fella said. Tell me quick, ain't love a kick in the head I couldn't feel any better or I'd be sick Oh yeah Oh yeah Everything, everything Everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Woo! 
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation. Actually, we continue the storytelling of the making of Goodfellas. And we just heard a great story about an improvised scene that became a part of a script that ultimately became, I think, the best scene in the entire movie, that showdown between Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci while the guys were hanging out in a bar and just having some fun, and it turned dark and it turned ugly, but that was just Joe Pesci messing around with everybody. But no one there knew it was going to happen, and no one in the audience did too, and that's what made that scene so good. And then there's Scorsese's legendary Steadicam shot. Just like the training montage in Rocky, the Steadicam is responsible for another unforgettable movie scene. It's one of the few shots in the history of cinema readily identifiable by name, instantly conjuring the image of Goodfellas. Low-level mobster Henry Hill, played by Liotta, leads his future wife Karen, played by Lorraine Bracco, and by extension the audience through the back entrance of New York's legendary Copacabana nightclub as Steadicam operator Larry McConkie glides along behind them. This legendary Steadicam shot through that nightclub kitchen was an accident. Scorsese, who didn't even like using Steadicams at first, had been denied permission to go through the front door, and so he had to improvise another plan. So how long did one of the film's most famed tracking shots take to pull off? It was in the can before lunch, which isn't to say it was easy. After all, the uncut shot lasts a remarkable three minutes and four seconds. Thank you, sir. All right, see you later. Thanks. What are you doing? You're leaving your car? I never even knew when we were making it what that scene was. I never knew. I, had, I was clueless. I'd never even seen a steady cam. And that doesn't exist in the book, but it does in just a couple of lines, except couple of lines in the book in the hands of the director that's where you begin to see a non-fiction book in detail really blossom into a kind of art how you doing on, good good what's up there you go the whole idea is that it had to be done on one take so you don't feel that it was a series of cuts or but there was a separation between him and the world that he was trying to get into the camera flowed through them and just glided through this world just all, all the doors opened to him and everything just slipped away. It was like heaven. And then to emerge like a king and queen, this was the highest he could aspire to. It was kind of tricky also to get all the actions right because Marty is so very accurate about every single timing. You know, what the people do in the kitchen, the guy with the table comes at the right time and brings the table over. All these things are very important. But as far as I remember, we shot the scene only eight times and it was not even a full day. But we wanted it really in one shot and we got it in one shot. Take my wife, please. And that voice you just heard was that of comedian Henny Youngman. If you remember the scene, they get that great seat in the hottest club in town. And boy, Lorraine Bracco thinks she struck gold. And Henry Hill, he's living large. And Henny Youngman, of course, is the king of one-liners who played himself in that club scene. The reason that three-minute shot had to be redone eight times was not because of complications choreographing it, but because it ends on Youngman. But Youngman kept fluffing his lines, spoiling the clothes of the scene. Scorsese's attention to detail can be seen in all of his films, especially in Goodfellas. Here's Scorsese on the set of Goodfellas doing a wardrobe inspection on the actor who plays 
the young Henry Hill. Uh, the kid doesn't look like a gangster yet. He has to look. His shoes are going to be shined. Got a pinky ring, kid? Yeah. Yeah, that's better. I would like it just a little bit. We don't have any stays in the collar? Yeah, this one doesn't call for No stays, Christine? He was very obsessed about the collars that the mafia wear, where they're almost closed over the tie. And only his mother and father could could actually press those collars properly. So Marty would reject actor after actor who didn't have the right pressed collar, and they would be sent back, and his mother would properly iron it. He tied my tie every day. The way he wanted the knot was very specific, and I guess from when he was growing up, and every day he would tie my tie and, and, and get, the, uh, get the knot right. I think he, you know, he's very careful to make sure that it's believable. You know, he's all, he'll often say to me in dailies, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. It's the beautiful evocation of food. And he loves, for example, very tight shots of keys being put into locks and, or doorknobs being turned. Because there are things that we do a thousand times a day but aren't ever celebrated in quite that way. They're distilled images, and they have a meaning. They have a real meaning for us, but that we don't even realize because we do them so many times a day. And what's so beautiful and dangerous about Goodfellas is Martin Scorsese's ability to get us, the audience, to sympathize somehow with the bad guys. But he doesn't leave us there. Scorsese's truthful portrayal of the human heart leaves us at the end of the film with real moral clarity. But the only way you can really be truthful about it is to really not be inhibited by anything. What do you mean, don't be like... I think it explains what the world is really like. And part of what's so interesting is that it starts out as a lot of fun. We're as bad as they are. We're happy to see the postman go in the oven. And all of a sudden, of course, when Spider gets shot, it all turns and it changes. I mean, he shoots that poor kid in the foot. You should know then, these are not, this is not the way to live. You don't be sucked in by these guys. Because it's going to get in one way before the witness protection program. It only ended one way. Death. It was the most frightening thing. I mean, I was out of my body for a minute, you know. I had to put myself in a frame of mind to really kill someone. I made them put full loads in the gun, in the 45, because I wanted to hear the echo. I wanted to feel the gun really kick like a real 45. The silence after the last shot rang out was more deafening than the gun. I think I brought more of almost like a documentary attitude towards it. I wanted to show you uh, the star of the movie is a way of life, not a character. Somebody uh, commented that uh, it's like Scarface without Scarface, but that's what it is. Yeah, we don't need Scarface in the film. You know, it's the way of life. If you grow up around that, um, what I wanted to show you was um, the danger of the exuberance of that kind of life at first, you see. The danger of the exuberance, the ex- danger of the excitement. When you're young, you think you're, you you're going to live forever, and you, you, know, you, you think you're tough, and you could take a few more shots in the head than somebody else could. And so you, you think you're tougher than the other person. Well, eventually, if you don't use your brain... You know, you're not going to wind up anywhere. And I think the, the danger of the excitement of that lifestyle is what I grew up around, and I saw a lot of people uh, disappear because of that. Marty wants you to figure things out yourself. He wants you to come to the film and you to look at it and decide how you feel about it. He doesn't want to tell you what to think. He wants you to experience it. 
And I think that's what makes the film great. There's no judgment on these characters. We're the ones to judge. He just gets it right. And if you've ever grown up near mobsters, and I've spent quite a bit of time, if you grow up near Newark, New Jersey, when I grew up, or liked playing horses like I did and go to an OTB in Brooklyn, there they were. And everyone loved him, but more importantly, everyone was afraid of him. And you always heard a story, and then every once in a while you'd see it. You'd see him beat the you-know-what out of somebody almost to death, and it would scare the life out of you. And they loved that. They loved it. I knew that wasn't my life. It was none of my friend's life. We stayed far away. We're not attracted to it at all. But many, many impressionable young men drawn right into the life. No better movie about the life. I think even better than The Godfather. Because it wasn't as romantic. These guys are rough. And it's ugly. And when they're digging ditches and throwing guys in, uh, into a ditch, shooting a kid in the foot over nothing, uh, you get the, the real sense that these are some pretty bad dudes. And that gun could turn on you in any minute. When we come back, our final segment on the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Your love is all that ever mattered. It's everything. our American stories, the final segment, our hour-long celebration of the making of Goodfellas. And by the way, in the first season of The Sopranos, Tony's nephew Christopher, played by Michael Imperioli, shoots a bakery employee in the foot for simply making him wait. As he leaves, the wounded bread seller yells, he shot my foot! And Christopher replies, it happens. It's a nod to Imperioli's character Spider getting shot in the foot by Joe Pesci a decade earlier in Goodfellas. And if you remember, that kid working at the bar got shot in the foot for nothing. And that's, that's what both of those stories are about. I've got to also add that The Sopranos is really about the fall of the mob post-Rico. Because in the 80s, Rudy Giuliani came to town and there was a statute called the Rico Statute, which was an organized crime statute, which allowed... Everyone in the organized crime enterprise to go to jail for the crime of one because they acted in concert. And this was how they finally got the bosses, the underbosses, and everybody. And it was going to take an Italian to bring him down. And it was an Italian guy named Rudy Giuliani who was then a U.S. attorney. And he was fearless. And there were death threats, as you can imagine. But Giuliani, Giuliani fiercely remembered his father getting shaken down by mobsters and also hated the impression this was creating in Italian-American neighborhoods, and nobody was more a victim of Italian mobsters than Italian merchants who either paid the freight and had their hard work and dollars stolen from them or, well, bombs blew up. And my grandfather owned a pizzeria in Brooklyn, and he always had to pay the freight for the garbage, and he had to order a certain kind of cheese. And I would say, Grandpa, why? And he'd say, 
It's just the way it is. And they basically stole about a third of his profits every year. And then they'd give a little bit to the church and they'd have a feast of San Gennaro and, and everybody would pretend to like the mob, but they hated the mob and they were afraid of the mob. And it was a lot of fake respect they got on the streets because they were just afraid of getting shot in the foot. For a film renowned for violence, Goodfellas has a relatively low body count compared to today's standard, with a count of just 10, which isn't terribly bloody when compared to the 255 body count in Saving Private Ryan. Once the scenes were shot, it was up to Thelma Schoonmaker, Scorsese's editor, to create movie magic. We've been hearing from her throughout this piece, but here she is with Scorsese and Goodfellas producer Erwin Winkler discussing how the uncharacteristic editing at the end of the film shaped the film. A great deal of Marty's movies are made in the editing room, particularly The Last Day as a Wise Guy, as we call it. The Last Day as a Wise Guy is, is a sequence that I think came together particularly in the editing room because we could... Um, we found that we could express the state of mind that Ray Liotta was in at that time, being coked up and completely out of control. It was written in a lot of small montages, but it was never really visualized uh, on the script uh, the way you see it on film. For example, when Ray Liotta plunks the guns, the camera swish pans up to him. I just always enjoy all the strange jump cutting that we did, you know, uh, Ray Liotta making veal cutlets and, and how we just uh, jumped around and just experimented and just had a hell of a lot of fun uh, violating every rule there is. During the previews, I got annoyed. The audience got annoyed, so I made it even faster, more relentless in a way. We can make it even more jagged. We can make it more fractured. And so we started doing more jump cuts. What I love about it is the annoyance at having to go bring the guns to Jimmy, knowing damn well Jimmy's not going to buy them. Stop with those drugs. They're making your mind into mush. That should put you in a position to say, what am I doing in my life? No, he's annoyed that I know Jimmy's going to make me bring this around. He's not going to want I'm going to put him back in the trunk. I'm going to have to go over here. I've got to stir the sauce. I swear this helicopter's following me, but that didn't pay attention to that. I think it is. No, it isn't. Picking up his brother. Drugs, coke, girlfriends. They're hiding guns in garbage pails. And it goes on like that. Everything seemed to be of the same importance. All on the same level. He could not differentiate at that point. <laughs> Total madness. <laughs> And it was total madness, and Henry Hill's life was spiraling out of control, chased and followed every, at every turn. Goodfellas was released on September 19, 1990. Here's the initial reaction from movie critics Siskel and Ebert. Since 1976, when he directed Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese has stood, I think, alone at the top of the art of film directing in the world today. His Raging Bull was generally conceded to be the best film of the decade of the 1980s, and now with Goodfellas, Scorsese has scored another magnificent achievement. This is a great film, a film about Scorsese's favorite subjects, the great tragic subjects like avarice and jealousy, murder and guilt, and it ranks with The Godfather in his portrait of the crime syndicate. I have never seen even a movie by Scorsese that really wrapped me up so much into the world of the emotions of these people. A day, two days after the movie was over, I still myself felt guilty, I think identifying with the guilt of the Ray Liotta character. Guilt not only that he did bad things, but the worst kind of guilt, which is the guilt that he still wanted to do them. He wishes he was still doing them. What I love about the film and what I like about Scorsese's work is he takes, in a very theatrical, exciting way, 
moral stands. Mm -hmm. He makes The Last Temptation of Christ. He makes Raging Bull about, he makes films about sinners mm -hmm. and finds the sa saints and sinners and sinners and saints. Mm -hmm. And this guy, he's saying about the mob, these guys are scum. Mm -hmm. He says it. That's so refreshing in an artful, beautiful way. It's a fascinating movie. It's a it's a great well, American film. Okay, I've seen it twice. I'm going back lots more times. And what okay. I'll go back for is small things, editing scenes, uh, the, the way he jumps in on dialogue. And my wife will tell you every time Goodfellas comes on, she can count me out of anything she has planned for the next two hours or three. It's just the way it is. Uh, if you watch it from the beginning, you can't stop. But come in the middle of it and you can't stop. Here's co-writer Nicholas Pileggi recalling how Martin Scorsese himself reacted to his own film on opening night. I mean, when Godfellas opened, uh, it was the opening night. And I'm there, Nora's with me, and Marty is sitting next to me, and Helen's on the other. And uh, finally it goes on, and it's Zigfield, and we're in black tie. And we're watching it, I get, I get this elbow. I says, what? See, we should have cut that scene. That's, he's talking too much. We get, and it's Marty. We're in tuxedos. It's the opening night. You can't do anything. Forget it. Sit back and enjoy it. And he laughed, and we watched the rest of the movie. But even then, on the opening night, he's thinking about how he could play around with it. Yeah, and that's what all artists are. They're never really happy. They just got to move on to the next thing because they want to tinker with a little more. After the film's premiere, the real Henry Hill, who was played by Ray Liotta, was so proud of the movie that he went around revealing his true identity and boasting that the film was about him. He only had one problem. He was in the witness protection program. The FBI had to remove him from where he was and give him a new location. In conclusion, here's Leonardo DiCaprio articulating what almost all of us who have watched Goodfellas felt an experience. Goodfellas is one of those movies that whenever it comes on television, there goes my next few hours. I'm absolutely going to watch that. And that's what's so powerful about that movie in particular. And, and Marty's work for that, for that matter. There's something about the way he connects you as an audience member and envelops you completely into another world that you become entranced by it and the rest of the world dissolves away and that's the magic of really making movies the goodfellas magic has made such an impact on the culture that it has even penetrated into the cooking world which is no surprise considering the amount of time scorsese spends shooting and discussing food in the movie but contrary to the posh jailhouse scene where Paulie advocates using a razor blade to cut garlic so thin that it will liquefy with a little oil, the technique in reality isn't very practical. The garlic tends to brown too quickly. The key step is that you must keep the oil at a lukewarm temperature. Instead of a razor blade, it's usually easier to mash it with a fork. Still, certain Italian cookbooks suggest you slice the cloves good fellas thin and to cook them low and slow and by the way just go to youtube and google the scene where they're cooking because there isn't a better scene in the history of movies about eating and food and this is what scorsese was great at doing piling on these life details that bring you into the world envelop you and carry you away and uh, let's take a listen if jesse's got that In prison, dinner was always a big thing. 
we had a pasta course, and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt, and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor, and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. Vinny was in charge of the tomato sauce. Ah, got the smell. That treat, the kinds of meat in the meatballs. You've got the veal, beef, and pork. Ah, good, but you got to have the pork. Oh, that's, that's the flavor. I felt he used too many onions, but... It was still a very good sauce. And there you have it, and that's why we love it. It was the life. Scorsese's right. It wasn't about any one character. It was the life that was the main character. And, boy, at the end of that movie, Henry Hill is just at a loss. He just can't believe it's over. It's the world he chose, and it's the world we're transfixed by. This is Lee Habib, the making of Goodfellas. Great job on this, Greg, as always, on these pieces. No one does them better on the culture, on the movies. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of the making of Goodfellas. Goodfellas.